what I found a lot with the relationship between the rapture and hell is that if you are 75 years old and your pastor is talking about heaven and hell and where would you go if you died tonight? Well, you you could die. I mean, yeah, you might not die tomorrow, but like if you get 10 more years, you might be pretty happy. Uh, If you're 16 and you go, you're doing the math, even though your prefrontal cortex isn't fully connected and you're not very good at uh, forecasting the future, you still know that you have a very small chance of dying anytime soon. So fear of hell is quite low. It's in the far back of your mind, especially if you've done, if you're at all involved in your youth group, if you've said the prayer, if you don't have a neurotic personality, an anxious temperament, you're just not worried about hell. You're 16, you're living life. You're driving around and hanging out with your friends. But if Christ could come back any moment, well, now we have changed the immediacy. We've we've cranked up the immediacy knob of the hell threat because, uh, and depending on, there's different formulations of this, depending on it, if you miss the rapture for some of these groups, you, you, you can't go to heaven anyway. The, everybody's gone. Other groups would say, no, during the tribulation, God will still accept people into his family, but it will be very hard and it will cost you. That's usually the caveat. You will be persecuted and hunted down like rats and you'll have to go through that in order to earn your spot in heaven. And that's also pretty scary. So it's hell or it's a really rough, I'm probably going to be martyred, you know, publicly or something, uh, a very scary sort of dangerous existence. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that fear motivation just then gets, gets pumped up all the more. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. We are back with the last episode of October, and uh, before you know it, we'll be in November and the end of 2020, which for a lot of us will be like, thank God. (laughs) So, we're almost there, guys. Um, But this week, uh, I was really excited to have a really fun conversation with our friend Dan Koch from the You Have Permission podcast and a number of other uh, podcasts that he's done over the years. Uh, So, we'll have all of his links in the show notes, but Dan came on to talk about a topic that I've wanted to address for a while, which is this idea of uh, end times theology or apocalyptic theology or um, kind of the left behind uh, ideas that were uh, that have been so prevalent, especially in um, North American Christianity. Uh, so a lot of you are probably pretty familiar with the left behind books and, and the movies and uh, all those tracks that, uh, you know, were kind of floating around uh, for, you know, still to this day. So uh, we get into talking about where that theology comes from. And really his work is uh, based around the mental health effects of just what that does to a person when you grow up uh, being taught that that type of theology and, and just the long-term effects that it has on a person. So it's really interesting stuff um, that was made for a really interesting conversation. So hopefully you guys enjoy this. Before we get into that, though, some housekeeping things. Uh, this week, the band that we feature on here is one of my favorite bands. Uh, they have an outstanding new album out called Wild Free. 
And they've been around for a while. Uh, they were uh, hugely popular in the early 2000s. They took some time away, and uh, at which point one of the guitar players went off and played with Anne Berlin, another band that a lot of people know. Um, and now they're back. This is their second uh, album uh, since reforming. Uh, it's the band Acceptance. And so um, new album is, is fantastic. Um, I keep listening to it over and over and over again, and they've been gracious enough to let us feature some of their tunes on this episode. So... Go out, support them. Uh, you know, like a lot of bands, they can't tour right now, and that's a that's a huge piece of uh, chunk of their income that that they can't currently um, you know partake in. So uh, just go out, support them in any way that you can. Visit their website; all of their links will be in the show notes, uh, and uh, you know, follow them on social media, support their music, uh, and uh, of course, we'll we'll update our Spotify playlist uh, with one of their new tracks on the end, so you can go back and listen to all the artists that we've used previously. Uh, there, as well as listen to our podcast right through Spotify. Uh, in addition, if you go to www.thedeconstructionist.com, uh, you can follow us, uh, find our social media links through there, our blog, um, you know, all sorts of fun stuff like our back catalog of all of our episodes. Um, and you can uh, link to our Patreon site. So if you want to support us there, uh, a lot of cool packages that we have available there. The most popular one being the Book of the Month Club, where we send you a book every month. Um, Perhaps based on a guess we've had, maybe it's just something that we're reading that we think is interesting. Um, but either way, we will ship a book to you. Um, and so, yeah, so that's all the good stuff there. Um, so let's get to it. Without further ado, I bring you Dan freaking Coke. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I've got uh, an exciting guest on. I've got Dan Koch on to talk about a topic that is long overdue. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you so much for having me, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We were just talking about, before we started recording, that it's uh, it, it's always nice to talk to somebody who does similar work, and uh, it's a small community, so it, it, it feels good to, to chat with somebody who knows what, <laughs> knows what you're going through. Well, I've known about your your guys' show for at least four and a half years. I remember that because four and a half years ago, I was planning out what to call my first uh, faith podcast, which is no longer on, but which was called Reconstruct. And we had a conversation over lunch one day. Ah, the deconstructionist just came out recently. Is this too close? Are we tr- are we like? Are we like intimating that we are doing something better than they're doing? Like they're deconstructing, but we're reconstructing. Like we had that conversation, which now I'm like, it doesn't matter what we called it. Yeah, it's fine. We we were basically doing similar work, and we are today doing similar work, and you know. But it's it's just funny. So I've known about your guys' work since the beginning. That's hilarious. Well, you know, it's funny. We we actually were talking. Adam and I were literally in the middle of an interview. Um, I think we were interviewing like Rob Bell or somebody like that. And we were discussing the fact that we also were conflicted about our name. We we're like, well, I mean, it's kind of like, we don't want people to think that we're not into reconstruction as well. And he was like, just put brackets around the, the D and E. And we're like, yeah, okay. I saw when you guys started doing the brackets too. I was like, oh, okay. Well, we're like-minded, but right. I had never reached out to you until recently. So it's good to kind of be in some touch now. Absolutely. Well, um, before we get started, because I, I do think this is a really fascinating topic because it's a very specific, uh, theological interpretation, uh, that impacts a lot of predominantly, I think, uh, American evangelicals, 
But before we get into all that good stuff, uh, tell folks a little bit about yourself. Obviously, you've got a great podcast going on now. Uh, you are in grad school working on your PhD. Uh, so tell people a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, so the podcast is called You Have Permission, and it's basically some combination of Christianity and the modern world, although there are plenty of uh, non-religious people who listen, and even a handful that are that are patrons, for instance, and kind of in the community. But it's, it's basically progressive Christianity for the most part. And um, I'm also, yeah, I'm in a PsyD program. That's like a type of a psychology doctorate you can get that's a bit more focused on being a clinician, working with clients. And uh, my, my thesis idea, or sorry, my dissertation idea that I'm working toward now is something around the uh, overlap of eschatology, of end times teaching, and uh, spiritual or religious trauma. And so I'm actually, I literally was working on it earlier today because a class right now is sort of a pre-dissertation class that I'm in. And so I'm honing my question and looking at the existing research and doing all that nerdy shit. But um, <laughs> the reason that I got interested in that is it's my story. So I have, I have like chronic panic disorder. It's, I don't have it right now. I haven't had a panic attack in, in years at this point, but I've had it off and on for my whole life. And only once I got into grad school for psychology did I recognize that it's called panic disorder. I used to just say I got panic attacks, had anxiety problems. But the number one trigger of panic attacks in my life, if you just take the, the sheer number, is eschatology. It's like, is this person the Antichrist? Will this lead to the end of the world? Will, you know, is this the ten toes of the beast or you know, whatever? Like yeah. Any or like or just going into class in eighth grade at my Christian school when we did a whole Revelation and Daniel like semester like and had that three days a week and I would just have a panic attack three days a week. So anyway, it's my story and this is actually quite common. I think in grad school people do their early work. They call it me search. You know, you're you're doing right. research about yourself. So that's I'm doing some me search, and of course, we'll learn about other people along the way. So, so obviously, this is a topic that that caused you a great deal of anxiety. Is that uh, when you were kind of uh, debating which sort of topic uh, to use as the basis of your dissertation? Uh, how did you come to this particular topic? Yeah, I mean, so what I decided to do before I actually started the program, I uh, last summer, or a little, a little, or maybe a little earlier than that, I, I recorded a bunch of interviews that became the four-part uh, End Times Anxiety series, which you uh, mentioned that you listened through on You Have Permission. And that was kind of me testing the waters to see if I did want to do this for the dissertation because I just wanted to talk to people around this topic of mental health and eschatology. And part of the impetus for that was I was at Fuller Seminary at this uh, summer seminar in last July, so two Julys ago. And I brought this idea. It was one of a few ideas I had. I also was thinking about like personality types and theological claims. This is still a very interesting question to me. Like if you map your personality type pretty well, are there correlations to the kind of theology you find convincing? And if there are, then should you sort of, should you control for that in terms of how confident you are? Totally different question. Quite interesting. But when I would bring up the eschatology thing, everybody had fucking stories. Like No way. And I realized, yeah, so somebody was like, oh my gosh, my mom didn't, uh, didn't declare a major in college 
because she said, well, I'm, I'm not going to graduate anyway. I'm just going for fun. Jesus will come back before I graduate. Or another person uh, that was in the seminar who, <laughs> who will remain nameless for his own protection <laughs> had the exact same experience that I had, which was as a preteen before puberty, praying to God to just let me be naked with a woman. I promise I won't have sex before you come back. Um, <laughs> right. So in, in a room of 20 people, another guy had the exact same experience as me and there are two or three more. And I just realized like, I just, if I can, I want to use this as a way to tell some of those stories. Some of them are of course funny. Those are the ones I'm kind of sharing right now. Some of them are a lot more tragic as you heard, um, you know, a, a gentleman our age, roughly late thirties, 40 or so who didn't go to regular college. He thought the time is short. I better go to Bible college, evangelize as many people as possible. Now he's got three kids, can't change careers, can't afford to work in a menial job, really feels like he's called to more expansive work than that. Doesn't know how he'll do it. Uh, That's a real consequence for someone's life, their ability to provide for their family in a way that is fulfilling for them and that uses their skills. So there's, and then of course there's like, actual psychopathy and, you know, uh, it gets, it gets quite dark the further down that slope you go. That's, that's so fascinating. And I was really, uh, uh, fascinated by, uh, when I was listening to you, and by the way, people should go check out your podcast. It's really, really well done. And, and you do a great job of really doing a deep dive into, um, cause you interviewed a ton of people. How many people did you end up interviewing for this? Yeah, I, I did. I did 20 some interviews for that for that four-part series. There's also a two-parter that was kind of a follow-up that came out, I think, in July. And that was actually me interviewing boomers uh, to try and figure out why did they all believe this? So by the time my generation was born and Left Behind comes out in like 96 or whatever, right. why was it so popular? Like it, it's it's a pretty outlandish group of claims about the world with not very much evidence to support right. it. You know, like I can understand, like if you say, why was Max Lucado popular? I, well, I kind of get that. He's like <laughs> a self-help kind of teacher. He's a good writer. He, he's casting a very wide net. It makes sense that his books would be popular, right? Whether or not you like them. But why was it popular? Why was it like a hundred million copies popular to claim that, okay, the UN is going to uh, create a one-world government where an Eastern European man who is currently living will be, you know, like it's it's bonkers compared to <laughs> most of the Christian living section. So how did that bizarre, you know, thing from the outside looking in bizarre become so popular? So that's what I was interested. I was trying to answer that question as well. Oh, that's that's so interesting, and, and there's so many questions I have for you uh, based on that. But <laughs> so let's lay the groundwork, though. For for I know there are people out there listening right now who are like, "Yes, this was my childhood," and then there right. are, are people listening who or are like me. You know, uh, thank you, thank God, you know, evangelical uh, ELCA Lutherans, because I, I had no idea what this was until later in life. But it's beautiful, it's music to my ears. Yeah. Ignorance truly was bliss in that way, but. Yeah, the Lord spared you. <laughs> yes. So, so tell people uh, just kind of lay the basic framework for what what do we mean by premillennial dispensationalism, aka yeah. the rapture and that sort of thing. Yeah. So we'll start with dispensationalism. And I, by the way, I'm not a theologian, so I, I'm I'm doing my best here, but I can we'll probably get close enough. Uh, dispensationalism is the idea that human history, the way that God interacts with people, 
with God's creatures and with the church and whatever is split into dispensations. So there's like a pre-fall dispensation before the fall where God is dealing with humanity in such, such a way. Then there's the fall. Then there's like the Israelites. So then God calls Abraham and then now God's dealing in a different way, in a covenant way with God's people, the Israelites. Then there's like the, the church dispensation. Like, so it's moving to the Gentiles, yada, yada, yada. Then after the rapture and all this stuff, there's the millennium. So that's to come. That's a thousand years of, of whatever, uh, peace and prosperity where Jesus reigns on earth. So premillennial dispensationalism is the belief that before that millennial period, all dispensationalists would probably have a millennium. Premillennial ones would say all this crazy shit happens before that. So the rapture, the rise of the Antichrist, seven years of tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, uh, and the con- you know basically the consigning of uh, Satan and all his demons to hell during the millennium, after which they're finally thrown into the lake of fire and whatever, either extinguished if you want to take that language seriously, or you'll, of course, not say that and say they are burned eternally forever consciously, which I don't believe, and you, you probably don't either, right. but we'll just leave that to the side. <laughs> so that's premillennial dispensationalism. Is that good enough? Yeah, that's great. Okay. So specifically in talking about the rapture, though, this, is, uh, this concept is this idea that, uh, that, that the truly pious people on earth, the, the ones that are the true believers, are basically sucked up into heaven before this tribulation period, right? And so, like, where does this right. come from? Like, this seems like a crazy idea. This is like Jesus 1.5. Like, like, not quite yeah. the second coming just before that, though. Yeah, so it's, um, again, I'm not a biblical scholar or theologian, but it's, it's some pretty specious uh, and out-there interpretations of a couple verses. So in somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe it's the plain in, in Luke, Jesus says, you know, two men are walking up a hill. Uh, and, you know, Jesus is talking about, I think he's talking about the coming of the kingdom of heaven in that passage. You might remember better than me. Um, but then there's this passage in Paul where it says, in, in the twinkling of an eye, uh, you know, the dead shall be raised first and the living raised to meet the dead in the sky. And he's talking about, I think judgment day is, is my understanding. Um, and so there's a way of looking at that that says, no, that's not judgment day. That's a thing that comes earlier before judgment day. And, uh, now you have a, a problem there with the syntax because it says the dead will be raised first. So some of these visions, uh, in various versions have like dead people rising out of the earth at the same time as the rapture. Most of the time you have that part sort of, I think, conveniently left out and it's just Christians disappearing and being taken to heaven early, right? So not dying like Elijah didn't die or whatever, something like that. So that's, I mean, I probably, if I were a biblical scholar, I could do a better job, but I've been less focused on that and more focused on, uh, you know, more, more kind of WTF questions and psychological questions. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I'll be honest, I, I know very little about the, the background of it. I think the extent of my knowledge is that it, it was, uh, uh, an idea that <clears throat> I think had been around previous to the 19th century, but was really propagated by this, uh, I think he was a Scottish theologian named John Nelson yeah. Darby. Yep. Darby. He, he basically popularized it. And it became much more popular because he made uh, one prediction. He made a couple sort of geopolitical predictions. 
And he was pretty savvy thinker geopolitically. And he predicted that the nation of Israel would reconstitute. Uh, and before that, he predicted that like Scotland and, and Ireland would leave England or something like that, which didn't, I don't know. I'm not sure coming. how savvy that is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. That might've been kind of obvious. Uh, you know, I, I've seen Braveheart. Right. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's kind of in the DNA all along there. Right. And I think he also predicted something like the European Union. Uh, and so he, he had some, some kind of savvy um, when Israel became a nation. So Schofield reference Bible, if you've heard that. That's basically just a Bible with Darby's notes in it. And that was like a massively popular Bible, especially in fundamentalist circles in the United States since its publication in the 20s. Uh, and then in 47 uh, or 47, 48, whatever it is, Israel becomes a nation and you get lighter fluid poured on this, um, on this perspective, basically. So, so talk a little bit about like, so, so this, this idea is kind of around for a while. Um, it, it doesn't seem, my understanding is it doesn't seem to really catch on in Europe per se, but it really caught on in America, um, especially around the, uh, the kind of big tent revival uh, kind of circuit. And so, and, and obviously part of it is in fact, you know, is based off of um, revelations and kind of this apocalyptic literature, which may or may not be a poem about the warnings of like empire and, and the Roman, you know, the Romans. Right. Uh, but you know, um, but like they seem to really base it on this, this apocalyptic literature. And so it really takes off, as you say, around that period. So, <clears throat> but it, it also seems to be contingent on a belief, a certain uh, belief in a literal hell and a fire eternal pit. Uh, so, so talk a little bit a, a, about that. Yeah, I don't. I haven't found anything linking it specifically to a particular view of hell or anything like that. What my my sort of sense from the research that I've done is that it acts as an apologetic for a straightforward literal reading of the text, and that is something that, especially in low church environments, has always been very popular in America. And you could, you know. You could uh, come up with reasons for that. We're the most individualistic nation in the history of the world, so that's probably a part of it. Um, you know, our great awakenings, uh, our big revivals in this country have have been basically for common people, with you know just sort of other common people preaching. Uh, maybe maybe with Jonathan Edwards or something being an exception. I'm sure there are more. I don't know a ton about the history of American evangelicalism and all that. Um, but, but yeah, that I keep finding that, that it's like, uh, we really want to, as Americans in particular, read the Bible as if it was written directly to us in English in a way that does not require seminary education, that does not require elites to interpret it for us. Um, this is, you know, one reason Protestantism is so popular here, right? And so, uh, when you have a Bible that is literally predicting events and quote unquote, getting them right. You, what you then have is like a perfect book that is obviously not making errors. And, and if it contains math, if it, if it has formulas that lead to lead to, you know, events happening or whatever, well then this is so trustworthy. And so then I can read the Bible that way for everything else as well, which is what I really want to do anyway, because I'm American. Right. That's okay. That that's now that's obviously a little too simple. It doesn't apply to everyone, but that as that's a theme that has come up a bunch. Yeah. And that's interesting too, because I've, in my own conversations, I've had 
people look me in the eye and say, well, <clears throat> the Bible requires zero understanding of context or, you know, the, the history um, in terms of the, the people who would have originally heard this message or, you know, uh, what the intent was and all this stuff. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been told by these types of people that, look, you know, God wrote the Bible in such a way that anybody can pick it up and read it and, and gain understanding. And I, I cringe when I hear that. Because I think, I, I, well, yeah, yeah, you were raised Lutheran, <laughs> right. you know better. Right. <laughs> I'd like to think so, but but yeah, you, you, I look at I look at that, and I say, well, you know, I my dad and and uh, thousands upon thousands of other people have attended seminary, you know, for years and years and years, and learned just you know Greek and and Hebrew and and to it and read the, the the text in its original languages, and these texts are these languages are very nuanced, and and it it, it just baffles me that that that's kind of the, the, the attitude, but, um, and yet here we are, but, uh, so talk a little bit about, uh, as, as we're kind of moving from the forties into the fifties and sixties, um, we have this, this movement called the, the Jesus movement. That's very particular. And I, I suspect that's probably why you interviewed some boomers, uh, because they were at the it forefront is. of that. Yeah. So talk about what is the Jesus movement and how is that tied to, uh, the rapture and apocalyptic theology. Yeah, totally. So yeah, now, now we're kind of in the realm of those, those two follow-up episodes, which are called end times popularity parts one and two. And what I have found in sort of my, my broad argument is that the Jesus movement, which really gets going in like 70, 71, 72, um, especially on the West coast, but really all over America, this is the Jesus freak, Jesus hippie, Jesus people, all those terms are describing the same thing. And it's just like a massive revival among what are now baby boomers, right? But back then, they're college kids, pretty much, more or less. High school, college, just out of college. And uh, the, the way that I understand it is that the type of Christians who did the evangelizing that led to the Jesus movement, okay? So the ones who said, we're going to reach these hippies and college kids— those people were premillennial dispensationalists. That was their view of the text. They were essentially fundamentalists about the text. And Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, is sort of the best example of this. It came out in 1970. I believe that the it ended the decade as one of the top 10 nonfiction bestsellers in America. Wow. Sold millions of copies. Yeah. Massive success. And... In the intro to that book, he says, you can know that these prophecies are true because the Bible contains all kinds of fulfilled prophecies already. And so, like, this is your proof of it all. Uh, now, he didn't, he, he's assuming that the biblical record of the fulfilled prophecies is accurate, which is, of course, a very big circular argument. Right. But th- he doesn't say it that way. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of reasons why it, it seemed plausible in 71, for instance, that the world might be coming to an end soon. You've got Vietnam is still going. You have a giant recession just around the corner. You've got uh, the tumult of the 60s and early 70s. You've got tons of assassinations. You've got nuclear armament and proliferation. The Cold War is still raging. I mean, we shouldn't judge our parents' generation too harshly that they thought it could be true in 1971 
that the world was coming to an end. I think I probably would have thought that too if I lived then. And so then you have a theology and a way of reading the text that says, exactly, it really is. And this is all part of God's plan. Jesus is coming back any day now. It kind of made sense. It, it seemed quite a bit more plausible then than it does, I mean, maybe during covid and we're living currently under wildfire smoke here in Seattle. So it, cur- it kind of seems plausible again at the moment. But in the 70s, early 70s, it, it really seemed plausible to a lot of these young people. And the city lights coming down on me. They show my faults like a silver screen. And I'm contemplating what I heard you say. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I think we find ourselves <clears throat> in another time period where, you know, if you follow the news, it certainly does seem like the world is falling apart and that, you know, we surely are in the end times. It's like, we have murder hornets now. Like, just add that to the list, you know? You're like, really? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, all the earthquakes and, you know, natural disaster stuff, like climate change, of course, will just continue to exacerbate natural disasters and whatnot. Although I think that wars and rumors of wars are down globally, so that's not as convenient. But you know, yeah, true. So, so talk about okay. So, so you interview baby boomers and you interview a whole host of people. A lot of really fascinating interviews that I that I listened to. Um, talk about you know some of the, some of the instances that you know that that you were able to discuss on the podcast. What sort of impact did this have on the average person? Yeah, so the people that I've interviewed who are the recipients of this teaching and and for whom it had some kind of negative mental health association are, are roughly our age, so they're probably 25 to 45 the, is mostly the group that I've interviewed. So mostly millennials uh, and a couple, you know, younger Gen Xers. Um, and there's, you know, there's a host of, of stories, a lot of things in common. Um, one that's sticking out to me right now is the story of a young man who was gay and in a very conservative family. And for him, the promise of Christ's return was an escape valve for having to deal with his sexual orientation. And so he was, he was able to sort of bottle that up uh, until he got to college, and then he had to, he had to deal with it, basically. And he had, I don't know if you recall the story, but he had a pretty significant mental breakdown in college and had two or three years of his life that are just kind of lost to fog uh, and he's doing much better now. I, I'm I'm in touch with him, and uh, he he's in a much healthier place. But he he really had whole years of his life kind of taken away, uh, and and uh, you know, so for him that that was more complicated because it played in with sexual orientation and his identity, which is of course very very central to us as people. But that's one story. Another woman um, got kind of brought in on a prediction by a particular. Uh, prophetess, uh, this woman, Mina Lee Grebin, who still is publicly prophesying on her YouTube channel. Wow. And she predicted that, uh, that, that Obama would never leave office, that they would find a way to keep the next president from coming in and that there would be a giant cataclysm. So this woman, um, was really into this. She was convinced for a number of reasons, took her, uh, the severance package she got from her job and spent it on prepping, uh, and was involved with a, uh, a boyfriend who was really into it. And they all like 
quit their jobs and, you know, sold, sold what they had basically and prepped. And then of course it didn't happen. And she had to start over. Uh, and she's had a lot of stuff to work through with therapy, of course. Um, also doing much better today. Um, so that, that's two examples of the 21 or so stories that I heard from people. So, so talk a little bit about, uh, what, what are the common themes that I've, I, I've found at least with, uh, this, very American evangelical fundamentalist kind of expression of Christianity is that it, it's all based on, on fear or you know, like fear tactics, kind of keeping people scared, uh, you know, uh, in terms of like using that as a tool to keep them engaged in the faith. Uh, it seems to be very similar here. You know, this idea, this very real tangible idea that, that God is going to come back at any moment and, you know, maybe you'll be part of the, the lucky elect, uh, and maybe you won't be. And if you're not, uh, talk a little bit about the tribulation period, because then the rest of us are, you know, left behind, <laughs> you know, as the books say. And we go through this, uh, this, this period of um, trial and tribulation, all sort of things. So talk a little bit about that and how that plays into this idea, because that always seemed like a plot hole to me. Uh, specifically, what's the plot hole? Because my, my thought is like, if you see people sucked up into, to heaven, well, there's your proof, right? Oh yeah. 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 yeah yes. So that actually, how would you yeah, not that came up in the episodes? Too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, um, it's not very well thought out in these schemas. Like for instance, um, the way that they anticipate things going, right? So somehow, uh, everybody leaves, you know, all these people are raptured, and then like nobody becomes a Christian because of it. Like that's, it's almost like you have to say <laughs> it's a hardening of, of Pharaoh's heart kind of a thing. Right. Cause otherwise I would just be like, it's like the only thing that could happen that would make me a fundamentalist <laughs> right. would be the rapture. Yes. Then I would obviously become one immediately. Yeah. Of course I would. And it would be quite straightforward. So um, that is a, that is a plot hole, but let, let's talk about fear a little bit. So, I mean, I think it's true that all religious systems use both love and fear, uh, both kind of like uh, inspiring to higher ideals and a fear of consequences to, to promote themselves, to keep people engaged in community, to keep them engaged in the family, you know. So th- this, is a, this is as old as humanity. Um, but it is true, I think, that fundamentalist religion uh, really ratchets up fear um, in a way that, you know, for instance— Unitarian Universalists don't do. Right. So, uh, to pick the opposite example. <laughs> so, when I, I think when it comes to fundamentalist Christianity, the ultimate fear is hell. That is the trump card, right? There's nothing worse than eternal. There's nothing longer than eternity, and there's nothing worse than eternal punishment. So, that's really what's at the root of the fear. So, if I'm a parent and I'm fearing for my child who's not enjoying church, and I'm worried that they're kind of straying. Well, what am I really afraid of? I'm afraid that they're going to hell. That, that, like, if I'm if I'm being rational, that's the most thing. That's the thing I should be most afraid of. Now, I might also just be afraid of a breakdown of family connection. That that I'm not saying because that's not the approved answer in my church setting. It's hell. But you know, so that's an interest. That's just an interesting thing where uh, sometimes I think that we assume that people are afraid of hell. When oftentimes they're afraid of actually much more mundane things that are called hell or something like that because that's the language that the group uses. That's a little bit of a sidebar. Anyway, back to this. So what I found a lot 
with the relationship between the rapture and hell is that if you are 75 years old and your pastor is talking about heaven and hell and where would you go if you died tonight? Well, you, you could die. I mean, yeah, you might not die tomorrow, but like if you get 10 more years, you might be pretty happy. Uh, if you're 16 and you go, you're doing the math, even though your prefrontal cortex isn't fully connected and you're not very good at uh, forecasting the future, you still know that you have a very small chance of dying anytime soon. So fear of hell is quite low. It's in the far back of your mind, especially if you've done, if you're at all involved in your youth group, if you've said the prayer, if you don't have a neurotic personality, an anxious temperament, you're just not worried about hell. You're 16. You're living life. You're driving around and hanging out with your friends. But if Christ could come back any moment, well, now we have changed the immediacy. We've, we've cranked up the immediacy knob of the hell threat because, uh, and depending on, there's different formulations of this, depending on it, if you miss the rapture for some of these groups, you, you, you can't go to heaven anyway. Everybody's gone. Other groups would say, no, during the tribulation, God will still accept people into his family, but it will be very hard and it will cost you. That's usually the caveat. You will be persecuted and hunted down like rats and you'll have to go through that in order to earn your spot in heaven. And that's also pretty scary. So it's hell or it's a really rough, I'm probably going to be martyred, you know, publicly or something, uh, a very scary sort of dangerous existence. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that fear motivation just then gets, gets pumped up all the more. What's, what's fascinating to me about that is that there's this aspect, I think there was a TV show on, uh, I want to say Netflix or something. It was this kind of thought experiment um, in terms of if we could prove tomorrow that there is an afterlife, how would that change the way that you live your life? And it seems to me that if the rapture happened and all of a sudden we wake up one day and there are empty cars in the middle of the highway and all that sort of yeah. thing. And you're like, well, you've still got a chance to get in though, but you might be persecuted. You're like, who gives a shit? <laughs> like if right, someone right. crucifies me tomorrow, I know I'm going to heaven. You know, I'm going to do everything I can to, to, to get right and, you know, end up with my ticket, right. you know, especially if, some particular religious group predicted exactly the thing that happened and there's all kinds of records of it. Yeah. It, like if it were a screenplay, somebody would mark this part in giant red pen and go, this does not follow. I need a better, you know, no one's going to buy this. It's good but for a cheap horror It's movie. not a screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's like a C movie plot in that sense. But, but as I said, there are other formulations that are a bit more realistic in terms of, no, we know that, you know, I don't know, I guess not really. They're all pretty unrealistic in terms of, how they think it's going to go down. It's very, uh, it's a lot of mental gymnastics for people who are already convinced of something who are doing this, who are doing the nuts and bolts of this prophecy work. So the work quality is not super high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, and it seems to like my, my, one of my other takeaways from, from your series on this was that it seems like a lot like American preachers specifically have taken this basic concept of the rapture or, you know, um, you know, apoc this apocalypse that's going to happen sooner than later. Cause they're all every decade. My parents, I, I remember used to tell me like, Oh God. Yeah. When we were kids, there was always somebody who was like, the end is now. And then they'd be wrong. And then, you know, 
maybe disappear for a while or completely, and then somebody else would pop up. But like, it seems like American preachers specifically have taken this basic concept and really want to run wild with it, including making all sorts of crackpot, uh, you know, conspiracy theory type things, you know, like, so talk a little bit about that. Cause I heard a lot of crazy examples in some of the interviews that, that you did. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that the actual predictors are not the norm, right? So for every person who publicly proclaims a date, you know, there are, I don't know, 100,000 other preachers who don't do that, but who think it's coming soon, you know, or, or something like that. So there, and I think that media is probably a part of that. Like these are very splashy stories, so they get a lot of coverage. And so they, they reach far. Uh, although for instance, like that Mina Lee Grebin, her, her stuff, um, you know, didn't get a ton of coverage. Uh, so, uh, but there's also, there are issues with like how specific of a date are they claiming? And so the more specific, like the more of a story it is. And anyway, that's, it's kind of in the media coverage weeds a little bit. Um, what, what was I supposed to be answering when I, this, I got myself off track. Oh, I was just, I was just commenting on the fact that, uh, American preachers specifically have, uh, seem to have taken this idea and just kind of contributed or added to it, I guess. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I don't know of anything. The, the main thing I think you can say is that American sort of prophecy fulfillment folks always seem to find some central role for America in their schemas, which is just like, you know, a convenient and you'd expect it. And you'd also think that there's probably pretty good reasons that that would be, you know, a bias of theirs or something. I mean, look, none of these guys are properly speaking scientific. They're not, they're, none of them are like peer reviewing each other's prophecy, uh, you know, pronouncements or something, right? It's like, there's none of that going on. So these are kind of dudes and a few ladies following their guts and, you know, just, it's, uh, frankly, it's just sad. I mean, it's more sad than anything else. Yeah. It almost strikes me as, uh, the American fundamentalist version of, you know, like where they, they're, they're seeing signs and everything. Uh, it, it seems like that our version of like the Catholic, I see the Virgin Mary in my toast kind of thing. Yeah. So there's kind of, yeah, there's like a, and you get this too with um, sort of demonology conversations around, there are people who, you know, see a demon around every corner or something like that. And, and, you know, if you find yourself in that camp, it's probably not right. Like it probably isn't that way. There are a lot of reasons to believe that we have these kind of shortcut ways or very convenient ways that we can make sense of the world that require very little work from us. And, uh, it's, it's much harder to be careful and, and more measured in our claims, but by and large, that's a better way to get at truth. In, in your study, I'm, I'm just curious, and maybe, maybe you haven't come across this, but I've, I'm always fascinated or interested to see how do people from the outside, uh, maybe not from the United States kind of view this sort of thing. Do they kind of look at us and go, what, and what are they doing? You know, or, yeah. E- even conservative theologians, you know, like N.T. Wright, who's center right or, you know, whatever. I'm sure you guys have interviewed him or talked about his work on the show. Yeah. He he dismisses uh, premillennial dispensationalism in two pages in his book, Surprised by Hope. 
Wow. Which is a 350-page book about the afterlife. I was going to say, that's very um, short for just, him. <laughs> yeah, two, three pages. He just destroys it. And is just like none of these guys have stuck to any kind of standard of consistency in the way they interpret these passages. They all say, we'll be literal when we can and figurative when we can't be literal. And then they all make all these figurative decisions. You know, <laughs> none of them agree with each other. Uh, none of them have ever been right about any of their predictions. It is, yeah. So if you don't, you know, I, I think the best way to think about that is like plausibility structures, right? So this is a concept in psychology that the more, the higher percentage of our community that believes something, the more plausible it seems to us. And for instance, if I said to, uh, if I went to any church in America and I said, how plausible do you guys think it is that Muhammad went into a cave and received a word for word, uh, translation of the Quran that is perfect in Arabic. 0% 0% of people in that church would find that plausible. If I went to a mosque in Iran and asked the same question, 97, 98%, 100% of people would find that plausible. That alone is not an argument either way. That's like separate from the arguments. It's just like a brute fact of plausibility. It seems more likely to be true. And so I think if you grow up in the UK, for instance, and you're not surrounded by this stuff, you don't have any reason to get, take it seriously because it isn't very serious work. It's bad theology. But if you grow up in a church where everybody believes it and you don't even meet people who don't believe it till college, that's a very different experience. And if you're a child when this stuff is going on, you know. And then, of course, that plausibility structure applies as well to that 1971 conversation about the Jesus movement. It just did seem more plausible back then. And then that gets sort of uh, solidified and almost calcified that then you can nostalgically go back to that. If you're a baby boomer of like, remember when we were so on fire for the Lord and it was included, included in that was this prediction of the end. So then left behind comes out 25 years later. And it's like reminding you of the first date with your spouse. You know, it reminds you of your first love. And so you're excited about it. It seems plausible to you. And still a bunch of your friends still believe it, even though it didn't happen the way you thought. Well, maybe maybe a generation's longer than 40 years, or maybe maybe our kids are the generation, or you know, there's any number of possible explanations that are a slight tweak rather than, oh my gosh, guys, we were fucking duped, millions <laughs> of us, by something with no substance. That's a that is a very hard thing to admit to oneself, much less to anybody else. For any for any human being. Yeah, it's this idea of they keep moving the goal line, you know? <laughs> it's like, right. It's like, well. But we yeah. all do that. We all sure. do that, right? So let's take my support for Obama, right? Oh, Obama's going to be so good. He's going to get us out of these wars. Well, look at all these drones he's using. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, he probably has some hard decisions to make, you know, whatever. I, I, I'm, it's going to take so much for me to go, no, it should have been Romney, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, you're right. That does like no, I will probably never admit that Obama was a bad president no matter what I were to hear for the rest of my life. 
certainly I'll never admit that Trump was a good president, uh, no matter what I ever hear. Like, it's just, that's human psychology. We're just, it's much easier to take a, a small change rather than the whole thing. Can I give actually one other example of this that yeah, I think is absolutely. very pertinent these days? So, uh, especially in this kind of deconstruction faith space of which you and I both inhabit, I think that if you're looking, it doesn't take very long until you find people who seem to be fundamentalists about their new ex-fundamentalism, yes. right? And so we might ask, well, what explains that? And I actually think that there's a, a pretty good neurological way to think about that. When somebody leaves Christian fundamentalism, which is an easier path? Keep all the neural pathways, all the behaviors, all the reward, the incentive and disincentive systems in place. Just change some of the reference, change some of the individual beliefs and items. Is that harder or is it harder to go, I never learned to think or argue or reason. I now need to like learn logic and figure out how to debate and, and be around opposing viewpoints because that is precisely the thing that was kept from me in my fundamentalist upbringing. I think the latter is 10 times harder, but is the real fix. And so it's simpler to just go, I'm not, now my identity is anti my old identity. Then I actually don't have to do much neural pathway refig reconfiguring. I don't really need to change that many of my habits. Instead of going to church, I'll just do this other thing instead. Instead of going to youth group and talking with my friends about how all our secular friends must be wrong, I'll talk with all my secular friends about how our religious friends must be wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, that doesn't. That's not an argument for whether God exists either way. It's just like, I think it explains why we see that. It's a much, it's a path of much less resistance in the brain to just swap a couple things rather than to rebuild from the ground up. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Adam and I used to talk about that all the time. This idea that we, we, you see this all the time. We see it with, uh, you know, they used to be, I don't know, a conservative Christian and now they're a progressive liberal Christian. And, but they're, they're kind of doing the same things. They're acting in the same types of ways. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a drinking problem anymore, but I chain smoke constantly. You know what I mean? It's like trading one vice for another. And it's like, don't you see what you're doing? And I, even with like, take religion out of it. I've seen it with my friends who have, would self-identify as atheists, you know, but they're fundamental, fundamentalist atheists, I would say at this point. Right. Now, some of those people are survivors of religious and spiritual abuse and trauma. And so, you know, if I were their therapist or whatever, I would not give them a hard time for this. I think it's actually quite understandable that you see that as a normal pattern, but it's not what I would hope for them in the long run either, right? Like I would hope for some equanimity, some resilience, and, and that would be a different path for each person depending on what they've gone through their family of origin, their story, you know, that's a, that would be a thing to figure out. But, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hope that in the end they would just still be in just like a new kind of fundamentalism. That just seems like not the ultimate long-term solution. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think to your point, I, one of the things that we've tried very hard not to do is, is take such a hard edge approach towards, uh, the thing that we left behind. And I, cause I think that's very, very easy. I, and we see it a lot, you know, you see it in social media with, 
uh, folks who would self-identify as maybe more progressive now, just crapping all over, you know, folks who still believe the things that they no longer believe. And I think it's, it's easy and it's cheap. And I've seen examples of it. My, my ex-wife's family, for example, uh, you know, grew up in the Jesus movement, very much believed in more of like a, you know, conservative fundamentalist kind of uh, interpretation of scripture and that sort of thing. But, and maybe still do cling to, to some of it, but are some of the sweetest, you know, biggest hearted people I've ever met in my life. And it's just, it's very difficult for me to just say, well, you're an idiot, you know, cause that's easy and it's cheap. And, you know, and, and I'm no different now than I was before. I just have slid to the other side of the spectrum perhaps. Yeah. And something that, something that we often forget, I think is that people hold beliefs with very, like, very varied, I can't think of a better term than that, <laughs> and incredibly varied amounts of seriousness, right? So uh, people might, like, if just because you get a bunch of people in a Pew Research poll to say, I believe in hell, right? Like, that doesn't actually mean that they all think about it all the time. Like, a lot of them might believe in hell because everybody at their church believes in hell. Right. But if you ask a lot of those people, do you think your non-Christian great aunt is in hell? They'll say, no, I think God understood where she was coming from. You know, so it's like, and and I'm like kind of glad that that's what they'd say, right? Yeah. Like they're not being consistent, but they're being more humane. And and so it's, we, we often read a, a lot into these kind of things that are, are largely just sort of in-group markers. They don't necessarily say all that much. So you might have a, a relative or something like that who believes that most of their friends are going to hell. But like what animates her life? Maybe it's being super giving. And and if you ask her, how often do you think about your friends going to hell? Her answer probably is not that often. Because if it was, she would be debilitated by that, you know, dread and would not be the kind of loving, supportive person that you experience. So, you know, we just we we're quick to judge. I mean, this is one of the reasons that I love Jesus's teachings. Take the log out of your own eye before you remove the speck. I mean, it's like, I literally will never not need to hear that for the rest of my life and maybe the rest of my afterlife. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk about, because, you know, the core of your study was uh, to look at the mental health effects, obviously. And so, and there were definitely some significant, uh, impacts to, to mental health of the people yeah. that you interviewed. So talk a little bit about that because a lot of the folks that you talk to experience this starting in childhood. And it, I cannot imagine that sort of uh, pressure that comes with that type of thinking on someone who's still literally developing uh, neurologically and, and, and barely understands concepts you know, like afterlife and death and that sort of thing. So talk about some of the experiences that they had. Yeah. I mean, I do want to say that like healing in this kind of stuff is very possible. So my own story, I had pretty massive trauma around this in sixth grade, in eighth grade, and then scattered throughout high school and college up to my twenties when I had a big, I tell the story on the, on those episodes, like I had a a big panic attack. I had to leave the studio. I was co-producing a friend's record and I left before my vocals. You know, I didn't, I'm not, I didn't sing on the record. I was supposed to. And I, I just had the, the, the biggest panic attack of my life and I had to leave. Um, so, but like, I'm so much better now and I don't have any anxiety around this topic really at all anymore. So it's not, it's not a death sentence. 
Uh, but, but you're right that a lot of the consequences can be quite big. Um, I had, uh, I'm just thinking of things that come to mind from the episodes. Um, a young woman who never cared about the presents she got for Christmas or her birthday, or even, uh, when they got new pets, because she was taught that she couldn't bring any of that with her to heaven and Christ would be coming within the next year. So she had a fundamentally different experience of like the goodness of gifts and other creatures as a kid. Um, there were, there were people I interviewed who dealt with what, what researchers would call religious scrupulosity. So this is a particular kind of um, uh, neuroses. It's uh, scrupul- scrupulousness in a clinical sense is like, it's related to OCD. So it's, um, you know, you have to do something the right way or a bunch of times. So there was a young man, uh, who would start imagining if he would start to think of the number six, 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 he convinced himself that he had to change to think of the number seven, seven, seven before he got to the third six or else that might be the devil stamping it on him. The fact that he'd thought it. Wow. People who prayed the same prayer, 50 to 100 times a night to make sure they got it perfectly right. That would protect them from demonic forces. Um, So uh, what you have in a lot of these cases, and my case as well, is you've got an individual, especially a child, who has a, they have something that could be classified in the DSM. They have a diagnosis that they could get. They've got an issue. And then you got the religious context, which then fans the flames of that issue and gives content to it. So for me, for instance, I had panic attacks before I had them about Jesus coming back. I had them about thunder when I was in third grade. I don't know why I love thunder today, but I, that became a trigger. And then it was like a really big trigger for like a year and caused a lot of anxiety. So I obviously was prone to it already. So my classmate might've been shown the same material as me in sixth grade Nothing happens to her. I have panic attacks. That's kind of how it works. So the person who was dealing with religious scrupulosity already probably going to struggle with obsessive compulsive stuff, you know, but then here it's connected to God and God is supposedly this benevolent force that loves them. And yet actually God is the God and religion become the highest source of this anxiety and fear around getting it wrong and, and accidentally ending up in the devil's clutches. So it's, you know, religion is so powerful. It can, it is tremendously healing when done right and tremendously debilitating when done wrong. Oh, that's, that's remarkable. And, and some of the stories were just so incredibly sad, you know, like you, you mentioned the, the gentleman at the top uh, of the podcast who basically f- for, you know, like put aside all college aspirations and because he's like, why, why bother? You know, you know, Jesus right. coming soon. And so what's the point? And there were a number of examples like that uh, throughout those episodes where folks were just like not preparing for the future because there, there's not going to be a future. Yeah. Yeah. That came up, uh, that came up in a pretty significant way. If memory serves in about five out of 21 or so of those interviews and, you know, it wasn't a representative sample or anything. I can't, I can't sort of uh, say that 25% of, you know, I don't know, but it, it came up often enough that uh, it's one of the things I'm looking at for the dissertation. And actually this is a little in the weeds and uh, I don't know if it'll make it in, but there is some really interesting stuff in the torture research literature around what is called um, a foreshortened future. 
And it's the idea that torture survivors uh, often feel that they can't trust the world, other people, or their ability to pursue projects because the world is fundamentally not stable enough for that. And uh, that sounds a lot to me <laughs> like the kind of thing that can happen if you really buy into this theology. Uh, why have a project? Why why start a business with a friend or a big you know a big project of some kind? The world's not stable. It's not going to last. Uh, that's not a good use of your energies. But man, it might be a good use of your energies. And Jesus is probably not coming back anytime soon. So what a, what a what a waste, right? Yeah, so so talk about what what are some of the other mental impacts that you found that were prevalent for folks who went through this sort of upbringing. Yeah, I'm just kind of scrolling through some names in my head here. Well, of course, there's the ubiquitous. Well, not for you, but I <laughs> bet for uh, I would maybe say a, a plurality or majority of your listeners the get home and uh, everybody is gone. Did I get left behind fear? (laughs) Which, you know, most of us can laugh about, but can be, of course, a very scary experience for kids, uh, especially. Um, Well, here's another one. So uh, Jim Stump, who uh, he was not, I named him. He just gave me a short interview to tell this one story of his. Um, He actually is the president of the BioLogos organization, which I don't know if you guys have talked about their work at all on the show. Yeah. A little science and faith folks. Yeah. We found somebody on from, from biologos. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Jim talked about how the way that his theology worked at the time of his big scare moment, which was in 1988, he believed because his church taught that any unforgiven sin at the moment of death could be enough to keep one, from the holiness required for heaven. So the way he phrased it was, I could be driving in a car and get in an accident and swear because I got in an accident and then die from the accident and that swear is unforgiven and I don't go to heaven. Wow. So so when so in 88 there was this big thing there was a, a pamphlet that sold a couple million copies called 88 reasons why Christ will return in 88 something I'm paraphrasing the title. And he and all his friends had read it and like on the surface, they didn't believe it, but they were all kind of nervous. And he tells a story of like everybody being gone in his dorm. And my favorite part of the story is he sees one guy, he went to a Christian college. He sees one guy, he's like, but I wasn't really sure that that guy was a Christian anyway. <laughs> like he might not have made the cut. So that didn't really make me feel any better. But so that was a part of his anxiety. And, and he, you know, he more told his story as kind of like some color for the episodes uh, he was not as debilitated as some other people I interviewed, most everybody else. But for him, those things were tied together. So he had a he had a soteriology, right, of a, a theology of salvation that was like pretty restrictive and pretty legalistic. And so you combine that with it, and it it heightens the anxiety. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Uh, so, like as I said before, you know, I was born and raised uh, ELCA Lutheran. So didn't encounter a lot of stuff until actually really post-college. Uh, started in college, my, my first taste of kind of like, you know, evangelical Christianity. But there was a church that I went to that would probably be considered labeled evangelical. And uh, I, I remember one Sunday I was sitting there, we had just started going there. And the pastor was like, all right, I'm going to do a sermon on the rapture. And I was like, oh, no. 
Cause I, you know, I was already like ready. I had one foot out the door. I was like this, I know where this is going and I cannot, I cannot. And to his credit, uh, uh, he, he got up there, gave kind of the history of it and showed a, I remember he showed a movie clip. Um, and I'm fairly certain this video, uh, was from like the seventies or eighties. And it was literally this video of, uh, the next morning. So the next, the following morning, uh, this, this kid gets up or whatever, and here's the tea kettle going off and walks out there and everyone's gone. And I'm like, how yeah. traumatic would that be? Number one. And number two, I will, I, I have to give him credit. Cause he was like, this is nonsense. So I was like, Whoa, okay. And, and still love him. His, his name is Jeff Canal at central vineyard here in, here in Columbus. And he's great. Um, fantastic preacher, but very, very smart. But I was just like, I had never seen, uh, those videos or, or heard of like the, the left behind series, but there is a, and you talk about it. Yeah. There's a ton of like literature. There's songs. You talk about a Larry Norman song. There's books, videos. Yep. You know? <laughs> yeah. One of the questions I asked people was what their introduction to the teaching was. And I found a, a roughly even split between some of the left behind stuff. And then some of this other stuff, uh, there was a trilogy, a thief in the night, a distant thunder, and then a third film that all came out in the seventies. And uh, I remember they showed uh, Thief in the Night at my Christian high school. I probably also saw it at like Awana or something, which when I was with a friend in elementary school or junior high. And you know, I, frankly, I think that that's abusive, probably to show that kind of media to children. Uh, it's when when the theo- when the theological foundations of something like that are as speculative as they are. I think you err on the side of not terrifying children. I think that's probably a better, yeah, that's probably a better plan. Um, so I, I will be, I, I'm okay being fairly critical of, <laughs> of that practice. Uh, and in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring out how much I want to focus in the dissertation on people who were exposed as children to this stuff and, and take more of a sort of child, um, emotional abuse, um, angle. I'm not, I'm not sure yet, but that's, just suffice to say, that's a very plausible angle for the dissertation because there's kind of a good reason to think that a lot of this stuff is basically abusive of children, um, which, you know, you, you, you want to be careful. You, I'm not, not necessarily saying it was purposefully that way. I'm sure in almost every case it's not purposefully that way. Uh, but children's psyches are, are, are so beautiful and so vulnerable. You know, we have a, we have a seven-month-old here, our first kid, and I'm just like, oh, congrats! I would just fucking, I would just fucking, just I'm like a nonviolent person, and I would just fucking kill someone who was coming at him. You know, like, yeah, I, I yeah. wouldn't probably, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. oh, I want to protect him so bad. He's so valuable and precious, and uh, yeah. So I don't the the implications for chill, you know, children's spiritual formation are 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 big. Um, I don't know. Anyway, no, yeah, I'm with you. I think, uh, you know, I think about that all the time. Adam and I uh, had many discussions on what is the right way to bring up um, some of these heavier topics, you know, with your your child, and what's the right age to begin discussing certain ideas, uh, you know, because, you know, like we mentioned before, you know, studies show that you know your your brain isn't fully developed uh, until in some studies up until the age of 25, and so like. When you're throwing these deep, heavy theological ideas at a seven-year-old, you know they they barely understand uh, you, yeah. you know the framework uh, behind this stuff. Much less, you know, we're dropping like heaven and hell and eternal salvation on them. Yeah, dude. 
<laughs> That's so interesting. I, I just I actually recently interviewed a neuroscientist who said it's actually more like 28, 29 now for full connectivity really? of the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. It keeps getting pushed back. Um, but yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot actually. And now we're, you know, we're going off script, but who cares? <laughs> That's uh, right. Thinking about like, you know, I accepted Christ when I was five and thinking about, you know, other children and I'm just, I'm trying to imagine th- this is me being a little uncharitable for a second here. So uh, I know that I am, but me trying to imagine like what it would take for me to think that my six year old really understood atonement. Right. Like, and really was doing it out of some kind of like theological impulse of any kind. Like, I think that that's kind of insane. Now, what I, I could see them doing it out of a spiritual impulse for sure. Uh, like saying like, yeah, God is the creator of this world that we live in and it's got so many beautiful things and I, I think God loves me. And I actually think that children, I believe that children feel God's love in a way that adults have a hard time feeling God's love as as life becomes more complex and we have more anxieties and, and uh, worries and all that stuff. I have no problem with the idea that kids can experience God's love. I have no problem with animals experiencing God's love. Hell. Sure. So, I mean, that's, that's fine. But it, but to think that like, ah, we got to get this six year old to do the prayer so that our anxiety, like it's just so clearly to me about the parents' anxieties at that point, not about the kid. Uh, now if you, that's very different than saying we want our child to be involved in Sunday school regularly. We want them to be learning scripture and singing Bible songs and whatever, like that all makes sense. That's, that's education. That's formation. That's bringing them up in the faith. I totally get that. But this momentary decision stuff, thinking that it has like the same import as an adult convert in the, like, it's so weird. Like I've been a universalist basically for my adulthood. And so I don't have to make that. I don't have to worry about that thing. You know, like they can be different and it's all cool to God in my mind. But if you aren't that way, I just, I don't know. I, being uncharitable, I think a bunch of adults are deluding themselves and managing their own anxieties by having their kids profess Christ at an age where they, you know, they're just very clearly doing the thing that their family does that they're just, they're being a member of their group, which is fine. It's healthy, but it doesn't mean something ontologically about their status before God. I think that's stupid. Again, being uncharitable. Maybe somebody will... Somebody will hear this and email me or whatever a counter argument, and I will be very happy to hear it and engage with it. But yeah, it's I mean to your point though, it, it I've always thought about it in terms of you know we have laws in place that say that six year olds probably aren't equipped to drive an automobile, for example. Right. But yet you know something that is perhaps the most important decision of their lives. You know we're like yeah yeah at six years old you need to make a decision now. You know it's just absurd to me. And again, I'm with you. Yeah, I guess if we if we want to have an age of accountability, it should probably be 29 when your cerebral cortex is fully right. connected. <laughs> so any any time that someone brings up age of accountability, I'm bringing in the neuroscience and and saying like that seems like a pretty good cutoff. Yeah. What, do you want to propose a better one? And on what basis? Yeah, you're not allowed to make any theological decisions till you're at least in your early 30s. You know, I think that seems safer. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Um, or you're not, but you're not accountable. Like that, that question is always around. Are you, when are you accountable to God? Right. I just think all that stuff misses the point so thoroughly and is so much more about managing our own anxieties as adults than it is about what's going on with the kid. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that kind of, it, it brought something to mind when I was listening to your, to your, to your podcast episodes on, on the subject. We, so we interviewed a, a cult expert uh, back in our first season um, and some of the characteristics that he talks about in his book uh, that are indicative of a cult seem present uh, in some of these, uh, I don't know, factions of Christianity that really wholeheartedly right. believe this stuff. Like, you know, anybody who doesn't agree uh, is evil or in some cases, literally the devil. Like I remember the one, <clears throat> the one woman talking about how Obama had turned into a beast with wings or something. And I was like, yeah, what? her dream. Yeah. That was, that's Mia Lee Grebin. That's the dreams that, that she has been posting about long after Obama's been out of office, by the way. She still has dreams, like these weird demonic spiritual dreams where Obama starts by smiling and ends up sprouting demon wings or whatever oh and gosh. having red eyes. She's got some kind of weird fixation with that man, and I don't know. I wouldn't pretend to know <laughs> what's wrong with her. Uh, but, but yeah, therapist dream right there, I think <laughs> who or nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Be, because like I look at some of the, the behaviors of some of these subsets of Christianity and it, it definitely seems like, uh, like it's very cult like. And, and the other thing I want to ask you about too, is it, there seems to be some weird tie in now and, and, Perhaps uh, historically, this started, you know, back in the '70s or '80s as well. But this tie-in with uh, politics as well, uh, politics and, and media now, because we do certainly, and, and they'll remain nameless. But there definitely seems to be a news organization that certainly feeds into this apocalyptic belief system. Uh, in uh, as far as to say that they also have commercials that support people who are like doomsday preppers. And I remember one of the people that you interviewed became essentially a doomsday prepper based on this very real fear of the right. rapture. So what, what, what sort of thing did yeah. you, did you find in your research that in terms of like the effect of politics and, and media? I think uh, in media, I mean, I imagine you're talking about Fox news, but I actually think <laughs> yeah. you don't have to confirm that <laughs> there are, there are other news sources that are a lot more down the pipe for this kind of thinking than Fox news is there's oh, like sure. life site news and um, Newsmax and all kinds of these sort of like un, unregulated, you know, for-profit conservative Christian quote unquote news organizations um, which are basically advocacy groups or, you know, choir preaching or whatever. And they will, you know, interpret events in Israel through this kind of lens. You know, they'll do all that work for you. So if you're into that kind of thing, I mean, nowadays you can find a news media ecosystem to fit whatever you're into, right? So, so it's actually, um, I find that you know Fox News obviously stokes a lot of fear. It's it that's kind of their kind of their main mechanism, uh, you know. And it's also I think it's a pretty pretty common strategy on the right and has been for a long time because uh, conservative arguments often are based on you know norms not shifting too much, and if they do shift too much, then you should be afraid of that. Some of which I think is healthy and, and normal. Um, anyway. 
the cold thing's hard because uh, you know you really would have to judge an individual congregation, right? So my understanding of a cult, uh, the the definitions that have the most traction is like there does need to be like a charismatic figurehead who you know essentially speaks for God in a situation like this. So to the extent that the leader of your little fundamentalist church uh, does not have anybody overseeing him, uh, does not, um, is not a part of the Southern Baptist convention, you know, these sort of bodies that have some kind of power, you know, is just like fully in charge of the whole thing is involved in more areas of your life than just Sunday morning. Like the more of that stuff you add in, the closer you get to a proper cult. I think other than that, your best, you know, you could talk about how people might get into a cult would also maybe like some of these churches. That's a little bit harder of a distinction to make. I I get a little bit nervous around the cult language just because I don't want to, I don't want to water it down too much because it is a, it's a pretty discreet phenomenon that is so destructive. And if it doesn't mean anything anymore, then what, how do we help those people? You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I know we're, we're getting low on time here, but, um, talk a little bit, what, what are some of your lasting impressions and, and kind of what is going to be the, the result of all this research? Cause obviously you've been working on this since last year for quite some time now, interviewed a number of folks. So what are some of your takeaways and, and, uh, thoughts and feelings on, on what you're, what you're witnessing here? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, my hope is that people will eventually read or hear the research. I, I you know, I tentatively plan to do a popular level book after the dissertation is done. That isn't basically is an excuse to tell these stories. I'll, I'll present my own research and other stuff too, but I want people to be able to f- sort of find themselves in other people's stories, feel less alone, have something to talk about with their friends or their therapists or their family. Um, you know, I, I, in terms of like the research, I think the best approach is to be pretty humble in, in terms of what you assume your impact is going to be. I mean, research requires so many talented people focusing so carefully on the small thing that they're figuring out. And then all of that, you know, building over time into a larger whole. And so uh, in terms of that, like clinical research level, I just, I hope that I can move it forward a little bit and be a part of that conversation. Um, and then in my own eventual private practice and other kinds of practice as a psychologist, uh, I know that this will inform, I'd like to work with people. Um, uh, I'd love for my specialty to be people who have experienced religious or spiritual trauma. So that's all tied in for me. Uh, and I, I really hope that, um, you know, I guess I don't think it's likely that the type of people that listen to your show and listen to my show are like going to repeat this kind of thing with their kids. That seems unlikely. Um, what another friend has recommended to me to think about is, well, what's the climate change version of this? You know, it, now climate change is real and the rapture is not, but there's still questions around like what a child should be told and how do we harness their love for the physical worlds uh, and how do they, how do we frame it with some hope rather than just giving despair to our children? You know, how do we look for, so there, there might be implications there of like, what are the signs that your kid is already going to be dealing with panic or anxiety or scrupulosity or whatever? 
if, if you see that in your kid, you know, what do you try and avoid when you talk about the challenges of this world? Like, how do you love them best? Um, I guess I'm just spitballing. There's a lot of possible implications for this stuff. Yeah. And, and, and sadly, you know, I think you'll have no shortage of, of clientele. I mean, we, you know, we've had numerous people who, who have just written in and talked about their own experiences that were unfortunately, you know, rooted in some sort of trauma. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I can't, I can't help but think that I'm hopeful that at least if, you know, as you said, the folks who are listening to my podcast, your podcast, uh, likely aren't going to repeat the same, uh, type of, you know, upbringing with it, with their children. But I, I can't help but think that maybe there's some hope that maybe, maybe, uh, an uncle out there, maybe who'd gone through it, you know, uh, can can be that that uh, stability that source of stability for right their nieces or nephews totally you know yeah I mean although this this theology is just far less popular with our generation and uh, Gen Y they're a little young to know for sure or Gen Z rather they're a little young to know um, but it's like almost exclusively a baby boomer thing and so in terms of the actual teaching like it's just going to keep dying off other than you know like independent independent fundamentalist Baptist, like these kind of niches, it'll keep going. I'm sure. Um, that's not really my worry. I don't worry that it's going to like, I mean, maybe there'll be some sort of resurgence. I mean, who knows? There's some pretty wacky conspiracy shit yeah. in sort of right wing spaces right now. Uh, and so I could be wrong that maybe that trend will, although I think it's a lot among boomers. So I don't know. Uh, I don't, I would like to know more about that. That's really interesting. Um, mental note to myself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe there will be sort of a, a similar type of resurgence, or maybe this kind of theology will get more traction as people are freaking out about QAnon or, or whatever else. Maybe. But I would say, generally speaking, I think the, the the bigger problem confronting people of your and I's age with young children is like, can we find constructive ways to engage our children in our faith? Like that's. The, the, the bigger question around my own son is like, what will we do that we feel comfortable with? Like, we're never going to teach him that he, that the rapture is coming, of course. Right. But like, how, what, what can we do instead of that? Right. So that's actually something I'm more concerned with. And as a broader theme, you know, for, for people sort of in our, our listeners kind of camp, right? Like that's the thing that I'm started thinking about, especially now that I have a, he he can't really understand anything yet, so I've got a little bit of time, a little bit of a <laughs> yeah, runway, but exactly, you know. So anyway, uh, yeah, I'm I'm knee deep, I'm knee deep in the uh, the question hour, as I call it. My my daughter's about to turn seven, and uh, is yeah very smart and has just this incredible memory, and she's already asking questions like that, like, well, daddy, what is hell? You know what 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 does heaven look like? You know, and it's like. So I, I've, I've, uh, I'm, I'm learning as I go, you know, in terms of how do I present yeah. those kind of heavier theological, uh, subjects and how do I approach that with a seven-year-old who knows what they know about the world based on their seven-year-old lens and right. how do I do it in a way that is, uh, fruitful and constructive rather than damaging, you know, cause I'm always convinced that something I do as a parent will, uh, land her in therapy. Uh, further down the line. <laughs> well, that's, that will, you know, they will have stuff to work out in therapy. The world is too complex. Right. Our vantage point is too limited. There's just no way they won't have stuff that they ought to be in therapy for, whether or not they choose to go. You know, everybody should be in therapy, basically, if you, if you can afford it. Yes. Uh, there's, there's really nobody who doesn't need 
that kind of help if you find a good one. Um, but that's, yeah, I mean, that's like, it's so interesting <laughs> to think through how do you, like, like there's, there's a fundamental problem here. Uh, apologize one last riff, uh, apologize for one last riff here. No, go for it. But there is a fundamental tension. The more liberal sort of spiritual side of Christianity. And I, and I guess of ev- my guess is of every religion, there's like the Christ teaching Jesus with the sinners, hanging out with the prostitutes, the expansive nature of Jesus's vision of the world, making the in-group universal. That side is always in tension with the side that prescribes the in-group boundaries that has regular traditional rituals that are done that uh, gives people a sort of in the moment sense of being known and accepted in a group. Uh, and that is suspicious of outsiders. And that is, uh, keeps the traditional beliefs down the line. And those churches do a much better job of retaining people. Sure. At least in the short run. Yeah. And the further you go to that, to the hippy dippy Jesus, which I do believe is uh, a more accurate representation of the world, uh, the harder it is for kids to stay in the faith, stay in the church. Um, you know, does does what does what God really wants of believers is to like be willing to relinquish their tradition for the sake of their children's freedom? I don't think so. Uh, that would be like the pure liberal impulse. That I actually feel like that's not serving the kids best uh, because spirituality is like a really adaptive tool for kids. And if it's, if they, you know, and so is community and, you know, so is regularity of, of, of community and ritual. You know, it's all, uh, there's just like, it is that tension. I've been thinking about this constantly, obviously. <laughs> there's that fundamental tension between the liberal and conservative poles within our tradition. Uh, and you know, just finding the arbitrary middle is not, is probably not the answer either. So I don't know that that's more where my mind goes about like kids and, and, uh, the future of the church and, you know, the faith of my own family unit and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does feel, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Um, like we, we are in this, this time of reformation or this new reformation, um, which Phyllis Tickle would argue that, hey, we're at fi- the 500-year marker again. So, Yeah, I just thought about that. I've liked a lot of the things. I, I'm sure she's awesome. That just seems too convenient. Like, it's not— Isn't it crazy, though? Like, we're accelerating <laughs> at such a rate. I don't know. I, I Maybe. Maybe that's—maybe it's really a 500-year thing. But it is a—we're in a moment, for sure. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. And, like, I first got into this stuff when Velvet Elvis came out, like— I don't know, 10 or 15 years oh, ago gosh, or something, yeah, yeah. maybe At 15, least, 20. Yeah. And, and he was saying it then and he was quoting her then. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, maybe, I mean, the emerging church is kind of a moment, but man, are we in the moment now? Yeah. You know, at least in this country there, I mean, the young generation just sees what the boomers are doing stati- on, on statistical average. And they're just like, fuck that. Right. And the young, you know, the church is bleeding young people and something has to die and take its place or, I mean, I'm just increasingly convinced of that at the demographic level. And so it is very interesting. Agreed. Yeah. I think, I think, 
a, a lot of times, you know, and I've been accused of this myself, one of my favorite, and I honestly don't look at iTunes reviews anymore. I haven't in, in years. Um, they're they're, they're uh, helpful, I think, initially, you know, some good constructive feedback. And then after a while, it's just like some anonymous person just blowing you up for, with a one-star review. But I had one that said, uh, uh, one star, if I could give him no stars, you know, it's complete heresy and not based out of the Bible at all. And it's like, that. that is the typical argument that I hear for folks who take more of a uh, progressive uh, stance on things is that uh, we don't take the Bible seriously at all. When I would argue that we take it even more seriously and we take it back to the roots. And I think, and this is my, my personal feeling is that a lot of this current generation, the reason we're in such a uh, kind of um, reformation type period or, or a uh, changing, a, a moving um, it is because this younger generation is very smart, has access to information that we never had when we were kids. Yeah, it's a big part of it. And yeah. are willing to put in the work and do the research and uh, are, are calling bullshit on a lot of it because they're seeing, hey, wait, this is not always the way that we looked at this. Fundamentalism yeah, is mean, a very like, new thing, you know? If you're 12 in 1993 and someone tells you, oh, Catholics aren't Christians. Right. They focus on suffering and the crucifixion. They worship Mary. We focus on the resurrection. Right. That was like such a plausible thing when I heard that <laughs> as a kid. A 12-year-old today will just pull up Wikipedia and be like, uh, actually, mom, it looks like Catholics are 60% of the world's Christians. Yeah. Uh, and they affirm the same, what is this, the Apostles' Creed? And we all agree on this. So how are you saying they're not Christians? Right. You know, like, you just can't shit like that. You just can't say to a 12 year old who knows how to use Wikipedia. It's and that's incredible because we have all these calcified systems that are based in, like I said earlier, they're based in plausibility structures of like, well, everybody at my seminary believed this. Right. Right. But they're not based in fact and they're not based in any kind of careful look at the surrounding, you know, denominations or whatever. All that stuff just will not fly with younger people right. that have access to this information. And so, but there will be like massive collateral damage for that from that. Right. So it's good and it's scary and interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, could not agree more. It's a very, it's a, at, at the very least, it's a fascinating time to be involved in this sort of work. Um, what a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, truly, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is a, a fascinating topic and one that, that we've uh, meant to address. Uh, for a long time, and and uh, yeah, cool. And I would love to to get a look at your your finished product and see uh, kind of some of your conclusions and you know where all this. John, ends. I'll send it over to you in uh, four and a half years when the dissertation <laughs> That's is done. Awesome. I will have a shorter study that will be done in about a year that I'll, I'll send it okay. to. you. Okay, yeah. awesome, man. Well, thank you again for for uh, spending some time with us uh, this evening and uh, and coming on the show. Appreciate it. Moment, it's too soon.